Here we go. Today is January 2nd, 2022. And this is episode 259 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. Good to see you. Good to be talking again. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You survived the holidays and your birthday and the new year. I did, by the skin of my teeth. But I did. And- and our weekly show is now being published every six months. Yeah, that sounds about right. Seems reasonable. Uh, I I, uh, I aspire to change that in the new year. That was one of my one of my resolutions is to uh, to podcast more. That's fair. I did I did see a pro tip which said nobody said resolutions have to be used for good. Oh, that's an interesting point. I'm just saying. I'm not I'm not implying anything in particular. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we before we go any further, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. True enough, though. For enough money, could yeah, everything is negotiable. <laughs> All right. So, um, unlike normal, we we don't have a list of stories to talk about. I wanted to do two things. One was kind of talk about what we learned over the past year. I just have a couple of couple of thoughts mostly about cloud. And then also wanted to talk a bit about what happened with uh, the Log4j dumpster fire. The what? I, I think I missed that one. The Log4j dumpster fire. Yeah, no, never heard of it. No? No? Just missed it? <laughs> you know, I was sleeping. Ah, uh, my goodness. For a long time, apparently. So, um, so you know, going back to... Uh, first topic, what I learned over the past year. I, I think it's not a big secret that I um, I work closely in the cloud business. And uh, I, I, on the one hand, I will say cloud is an amazing place for companies to run IT because it gives com- gives uh, you know most organizations access to um, the capabilities they wouldn't otherwise have. But but on the other hand. I see things go wrong quite a lot. And one of the most, um, one of the, I would say, all underpinned by the lack of understanding shared responsibility in, uh, in, in cloud providers, you know, it's, I, I would like to think most people understand it, but there is this concept of the shared responsibility matrix. And, you know, you, you as a tenant have certain responsibilities and the cloud provider has responsibilities and and where those responsibilities begin and end depends on the specific cloud services that you're you're buying you know whether it's infrastructure or platform or software as a service um, it, it is really important to understand what your obligations are and make sure that you plan accordingly I've seen that go wrong more than once but I think you're implying, or at least I'm reading into it, that one of the problems and 
benefits of the cloud, both at the same time, is the ease to stand things up. Absolutely. Compared to the traditional ivory tower of IT-owned assets and infrastructure. Correct. The ease of standing things up in a in a data center that is physically secured beyond what would be achievable by most organizations, and providing you know the ability to orchestrate systems and, and services in ways that most companies wouldn't be able to do outside of cloud. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, if I take it back to the most simplistic form of a security conversation, in general, in the old model. The perimeter firewalls were run by the typically the security team or the network security team. And if you wanted to stand up a new internet-facing application of some variety, you typically had to go through that organization to get that done. And in that process, typically there was some sort of vetting or some sort of assurance that you are following best practices and that things are vetted and secured and that there was some sort of checklist or at least oversight. Now, the downside of that was velocity of business was slower. And one of the benefits of the cloud is anybody with a credit card can stand something up. But there's no vetting of understanding of the risk and, and, appropriate skill set to mitigate that risk in that model. And it feels like for many companies, they have unwittingly lost their governance of their risk management when they threw open the doors to rapid cloud development. I, I think that's certainly true in, in some instances. And, and by the way, you know, you, you, it is entirely possible to apply the same kind of governance organizations used to apply in, in the cloud, right? You can map all that stuff to different cloud services. But by default, you know, you are enabled that the, the operator of the cloud account is you know, basically has the, the capacity to provision stuff directly on the, on the internet, which was as you pointed out, kind of an uncommon situation in, uh, in, in the traditional IT environment. Yeah, certainly I think there's nothing stopping a, a wise organization from applying the same governance that they used to apply. Aside from the methodology of standing up a cloud account or cloud infrastructure is, is relatively trivial and relatively easy. And there comes with that a lot of benefits, but it also comes with it this sort of shadow IT problem, if you will. Correct. Um, Correct. Now, the, I think the benefit one of the one of the opportunities is being able to to take the kind of cloud um, the cloud centric viewpoint and codify your your you know your um, your previously conservative view of, uh, of, of IT and firewall administration and whatnot in, in your orchestration tools, right? So, you know, you, there, there are, uh, I'll, I'll just call it cloud native ways to, uh, to continue that good hygiene. And those, by the way, are pretty good ideas. You know, it, a lot of cloud providers prov- uh, give you the ability as a organization to, um, you know, to, to, force certain standards like certain 
operating systems and certain configurations and, um, you know, f- uh, network settings and network configurations and whatnot. So um, th- there's a there's a lot of capabilities that I'm not sure are often taken advantage of. That what what I've observed is some organizations, I won't say all, but certainly some organizations have adopted kind of the um, the easy part and not the hard part. Right? They they uh, are not necessarily continuing on with the good practices. They they like the um, they like the speed and scale, uh, and not uh, not having to think too much about security. And by the way, that kind of goes back to my my concern. I I think that in some instances that happens because there's a misplaced assumption that you know security services are are uh, baked in. The cloud is a magical place, I guess. Uh, which is not necessarily the case. Yeah. I think there's also some, I'm trying to step lightly here because I don't want to misstate it and I'm out of practice, but uh, I think that there was some, for many organizations, a feeling that security was too slow and not nimble enough, or dare I say agile enough to keep up with the speed of business. Absolutely. And cloud gave them a way to sidestep that if they didn't have a very strong governing body that countered that. And I think, especially for a lot of small businesses, uh, I think they are, back to your point, getting caught by surprise at the realization that security still matters and it's not automatic. Yeah, absolutely. So so two other observations I had. Um, One is... There's a new threat that exists when you operate in the cloud, which is a little bit different than in traditional IT. Maybe it's a lot different. And that's the idea of um, you know, the access credentials for your cloud accounts. And, and these are the, these are the you know, SSH keys, API keys, whatnot, that enable you to, um, to use kind of the full benefit of cloud through orchestration. And um, what... What I've observed is uh, an unfortunate trend of um, of well-meaning developers checking in source code to um, public source code repositories like GitHub, and uh, you know that the adversaries have gotten pretty sophisticated at mining GitHub and, and other public source code repositories for these keys, with the intention of um, right now. Pr- Predominantly mining cryptocurrency. So if you if you check in, uh, you know, s- uh, some source code that has your one of your cloud account keys, you can expect to get a pretty big bill for uh, for cloud services pretty soon, as, uh, as as the adversaries are taking over your account to mine, you know, spin up uh, you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of servers to mine cryptocurrency on your dime. Uh, my concern, by the way, is that that trend will evolve over time. And as the threat actors get a little more sophisticated, they'll realize that there's probably more profitable ways to use that access, like stealing your data. Yeah, ransomware, Yeah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But th- this is an area where I think uh, I think a lot of organizations have to rapidly mature. 
in terms now, of uh, controlling Do you think that's keys. something that can be solved with training to your software developers to not use their access tokens and, and commit them to GitHub or, or other source code repositories directly? Or is this something you think is probably going to need to be some sort of technical control to stop that mistake from happening? Uh, good, it's a good question. I think it's going to require kind of a multi, multi uh, layered approach. And one is certainly training, but you know, I, I would say yeah, certainly there are developers who don't, you know, who, who are just oblivious to that fact. But you know, re- the reality is the least, the path of least resistance is to include the tokens in source code. So it's going to happen. So it's almost like hard coding a username and password in your source. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So But it's um, not looked at that way because people don't feel like a token is correct. a traditional username and password. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So um I, I I think training is one level. Another level is is um, enabling the alternative, right? F- provide a provide an alternative an alternate way, like something like HashiCorp Vault, right? Where they they can actually, um, you know, they're enabled to not store it in uh, in their source code, and then and then also um, another layer would be kind of automation. So looking using different tools, either in the repositories like GitHub or in you know in your own uh, developer environment, looking for uh, keys and flagging those. Yeah. Yep, and then of course, you know, probably having to rotate them once you find them because they're, you know, oh, absolutely. Exposed, I mean, it's just forever. like it's it's a it's a key that's exp- that, that provides access for anybody on the internet, right? It, it's like any other password that you would want to change if it got exposed. Not only that, yeah. you'd want to figure out if it was used. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it, it, and one thing it, I've actually looked a little bit into this. Uh, I, I'm certainly not an expert by any means, but it appears there's a couple different ways to, to skin that cat too. One is on the client side, on the development side, and having some pre-commit scanning software that can, in theory, look to find any tokens uh, or other secrets that may be in the code you're about to commit to the public repository and you know, yep. stopping you, confirming that. Uh, though there's... One of the challenges I've seen with that is that you need a fairly homogenous development environment to enforce that. Exactly. It's it's you know it's got to be pretty consistent. The, the flip side is on the repo side, right? A scanning tool there. Some of those are proactive, where you can scan as they're coming in and not let it fully commit if there's a secret. Others are, hey, I scan once a day to see if anybody committed a secret. You know, it, there's a couple different ways to to go about it. Um, some have pros, some have cons that that may lead one to the other. But I agree with you. It's something that I'm seeing often as well is is unintentional commits uh, because it's so easy to leave those in the code uh, and it's part of development and then, you know, mistakes happen. And it's not an exact science either, right? It's that that's one of the one of the reasons it does require kind of this multi-level uh, approach, because even even tool the the capabilities like github provides is not perfect it will miss yeah it will miss tokens and these aren't perfectly formatted in an absolutely repeatable format that's easy to regex and find it's it's a little more nuanced yep and then uh the the last last thing i'll mention is 
about backups. So, you know, we've talked in the past about, um, I think there's a company called Codespaces where they they had all their environment in AWS and their account got hacked through basically the same means we just talked about and um, effectively put out of business overnight because their entire organization was deleted and, and they had no other backups outside of their AWS account. Um, I will say it's super important to understand and and intentionally design your backup infrastructure, right? I mean, there's certainly it's important if uh, you know if if you're if you don't have another backup means, you know, to split your backup across different cloud accounts. Uh, but specifically, for for heaven's sake, don't backup your data onto the same file system where your live data exists, right? <laughs> But but I, why not? I, 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 because it will lead to sadness <laughs> and tears. Well, this is something I think we don't spend a lot of time thinking about in IT anymore is backups, uh, especially in the age of ransomware and all this other stuff. I mean, backups are starting to become a really big deal. And I don't know that we – like there are plenty of good solutions out there. I just – I think it's boring work that nobody finds sexy, so we don't talk about it much. It's, I mean, it's, to some extent, it's kind of like running your own voicemail, you know, like who does that anymore? But but at the same time, you know, you um, you have to make sure that the backup system that you're implementing actually works. You know, most cloud providers actually provide pretty handy uh, backup capabilities using snapshots and, and whatnot. But you have to understand how they work and actually use them. And, you know, th- look, we're all... Um, you know, we're all enamored by different software vendors and there's lots and lots of backup software vendors out there who will try to convince you that their stuff is the best, even running it in cloud. And if you're not careful, you know, you can easily configure that stuff to back up uh, your, your data to the same place that your live data is or, or approximately in a way that can be, for example, ransomware. So that if you, yeah, if you have I've- your, your, Main data, your live data is, is encrypted and so are your backups. Or potentially, if your backup system is made to do a backup anytime a delta change is seen on your code or your environment, uh, it gets encrypted and now your backup happily overwrites your good backup with the encrypted backup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and absolutely. now you've got a wonderful backup of your encrypted environment. Correct. So there's some nuance there that, you know, smart stuff needs to be thought about when you build these things out. But no, no, to be clear, I'm not anti-cloud at all. In fact, I think it's an amazing tool that I think, you know, having worked in very traditional environments that, that are data center focused and then worked in cloud centric or only cloud environments. Wow. Cloud folks can, can run circles around those stuck in a data center. Environment. Oh, absolutely. It is night and day. Absolutely. And, you know, almost to a point where it's becoming completely almost a deal breaker. If you're not in the cloud trying to compete with those who are, you're uncompetitive in terms of ability to react and manage it. But we are seeing a lot of the baby being thrown out with the bathwater on some of these security issues, things that we learned over the last 30 years and refined 
suddenly just got forgotten as people ran to the cloud. Also, to the extent of we could have redesigned a lot smarter and a lot more resiliency into our cloud environments. The, the capabilities are there, uh, but a lot of people lifted and shifted out of the data center environments and the cloud environments without really knowing, having the expertise to to utilize that yet. So it's it's a it's sort of a blessing and a curse. I think you said it pretty well there, right? That that as a platform, it's an amazing place, but it really does require us as consumers of the cloud to know what we're doing. And um, I, I fear that we are going to spend the next you know years relearning all the lessons that we had learned over the past thirty. Well, and I think I typically see DevOps owning you know, if you will, the root of the cloud environments and security is typically trying to play catch up. And, you know, I think in that environment, a good relationship between those teams is absolutely incumbent. Uh, I mean, security is used to have the arrogance of being the holders of the keys to the kingdom uh, and just being able to say no. And there was nothing anybody could do about it because they're the ones who owned whatever the firewall rules or the ability to to approve a a server being put in a rack well, that's it's kind of changed and now we're going along for the ride as it were yes but it's it's important to understand that the responsibility and and the the need for that oversight didn't go away just because cloud came along right, right? i think the way that the way that authority and and responsibility has to be exercised needs to change. And that's where I think a lot of security people are, are struggling. So the other, the other topic I wanted to talk about is, well, you know what, before we do that, any, any uh, lessons that you, you had over the past year? Oh yeah. Uh, I think work from home is still an interesting challenge for a lot of companies. Again, it's almost it's almost the same conversation about moving from data center to cloud, right? If, of, and if you're not careful, this turns into a zero trust conversation of your endpoints being able to protect themselves and all the transport between your endpoints being anywhere in the world uh, to your data being secure. I don't know. I think I think we're doing okay as an industry, uh, but I've seen a lot of required knee-jerking into a work from a strategy, obviously, with the pandemic. But I don't know that we have a great refined understanding of what exactly that takes. What is the right balance of security? So that's been one that I've been trying to kind of keep an eye on and get around, get my head around. But, um, I mean, for me, I, I switched jobs about four months ago. And I'm um, doing a director role at a late stage startup. So that's been a whole different world for me coming from a huge organization that I used to be at. It's been great. I'm, I've been really enjoying it. But it's, you know, the, my, my view of reality has been altered quite a bit because of the, the environment I went from and the environment I'm in now and, and the types of struggles we're having and, and, the, and, you know, the relative. My old company had more people in security itself that my new company has overall. So it's a very different environment. But uh, there's a lot of the same challenges, right? And so when 
especially when you're in a small company, smallish company with, with a small team and a small budget, I'm constantly thinking about the thousand things that we should be worried about, but I really only have the resources to do five of them well. So if anything, it, for me, it's, it's sort of reinforced, okay, wh- where do I need to place my bets of the right five things to work on? That's the most likely area that I'm going to get hit if I don't manage those, those areas well. And it, it's, it's been a good sort of exercise in taking the academics into a, you know, the real world and saying, okay, that's, that's nice, but that's in theory, that makes great sense. What do we we have to do to survive? Yeah. And you know, what are the prioritizations and, you know, and again, it goes back to something you and I have talked about countless times on this show, which is that there's no risk zero way to do business. There's no risk zero way to be on the internet. There's no risk zero way to be in the cloud. So it's accepting that and then managing that risk to, to a acceptable level and more importantly, communicating the risk environment well to the executives so they can make good decisions on budget priorities and, and time allocation and all that sort of thing. So, you know, for me, it comes back to some of the same basics of what, what's, you know, what's most likely get to get us hit and, how do I do those basics well, as opposed to, spoiler alert, what's in the news that day? So do you see, um, particularly being in a smaller organization, driving a, a maybe a different focus on things like automation versus maybe other things? You know, I, I, I'm well, articulating the question badly, but it it occurs to me that, particularly given the discussion we just had about cloud, we, we really ought to be, you know, we, we, we really can't do everything that needs to be done and it behooves us to try to automate as much as possible. Well, I, I need to be careful here and not talk about specifics of my current employer. That mm-hmm. would, would be, wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, I, I can say that like if I take an example of, Automation. There's a bunch of different ways you can approach, you know, what that means. And if you mean automation in terms of AI-driven defense, I don't know. If we talk about automation, like, okay, how do I make sure that my systems are patched and up to date, and that my infrastructure can be rapidly fixed if something comes out? The latter. Yeah, yeah Terraform and, right. and, you know, yeah. Um, but then again, that that is still a partnership that you've got to establish with that organization that owns all that infrastructure. And, you know, depending on how they do things today and what their methodology today is, uh, either plugging into that methodology with the needs of security or educating them on the needs of security and trying to get them to a methodology that is more rapid, you know, whether that's, you know, Hey, you know, you, you guys are just pulling containers from AWS's libraries without doing any work on them. You know, yeah, it's all automated and you guys are are spinning stuff up quick and that's great, but you're not realizing that these three packages on it are two years out of date. And, you know, so they're automated, you know, in, in this theoretical environment I'm talking about, but they may not be automating the security side of that conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, 
it's you almost have to be very educated in how they do their stuff and understand the gaps in their automation or their methodologies and how you can introduce that security conversation uh, in a way that, again, still isn't competing for too much of their time and energy against other stuff. So very long-winded way to dance around that question without talking about my current employer of saying, I think at scale for any reasonably sized project in the cloud, um, leveraging all of the capabilities for, you know, sort of infrastructure as code and, 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 you know, that sort of environment is important not only for IT and their efficiency and capabilities, uh, but also for security. However, that is in and of itself another unique skill set to know where those two intersect and being able to have that conversation intelligently. Um, that a lot of security folks are still coming up to speed on um, if they come from a data center environment. I, I know I am, for instance. I'm still learning every day about some of that stuff. So kind of a long-winded, probably not great answer, and somebody was so upset they threw something on the ground behind you. <laughs> I, I will have to go see what crashed up there. But um, So I, I guess I was... Uh, I, I sprung the question on you, so it was a little unfair of me. But um, really, what where the question came from was again going back to the discussion we had during the the cloud conversation. I'm seeing the the need for security skills start to pivot a little bit away from you know kind of traditional firewall admin, IAM type person to people who who understand how to orchestrate and automate and not necessarily that they are the ones doing it because as you, as you said you know the security team isn't t- is not typically the ones who are um, you know administering the cloud environment or the, the the IT environment anymore um, it's it's the the actual devops or the, the operations teams but i think where i see security going is is needing to create the guardrails, the automation guardrails that those operations teams need to work within. So the, you know, again, kind of setting up what are the security requirements in your infrastructure as code capabilities and how do you make sure that systems are patched in some kind of a scalable and automated way and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think we're going to talk about Log4J a little bit. That's a perfect example of this sort of conversation, which is a large-scale emergency patching operation that very much will be determined by how well you are provisioned and designed to handle before it happens. Right. Uh, if you're built out to be able to identify and resolve quickly, now it's a little tougher because this was built into so many third-party applications that you can't just easily patch without their own patch – you're if you've embraced that sort of model, you can handle something in log four j a lot more cleanly and efficiently. And you know, if anything, I think that's a great opener for a conversation of, okay, what went well and what didn't go well in our particular environment, and how can we start to move in a direction at the next time this happens? because there will be a next time, we're in a better spot. Yeah, Log4J was an interesting opportunity, <laughs> interesting learning opportunity. 
So it's a good, good, uh, good segue to that. So I think most everybody in the uh, in the security world is painfully aware of what happened with Log4j. But for those who may not know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a, a very severe vulnerability disclosed in uh, in Log4j, which is a, a as the name might imply, a logging library for Java. It's um, it's extensively used in many, 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 many applications, other open source packages, and and so on. Um, you know, it's been touted in the media as quite possibly the most severe vulnerability ever, and and I and it's been compared to to um, Heartbleed, but. I have to say, like I think people who say that have forgotten. Or maybe they've forgotten about shell shock because I, I, uh, I certainly haven't forgotten about that one. Um, you know, but this this certainly uh, operates at a at more of an application layer, so it's you know it's it is uh, indeed quite severe. And you know, we saw uh, the initial attack vector. The initial attack was using Minecraft, right? Somebody people were taking over Minecraft servers using this this vulnerability and uh, and on from there you know that there was I, I have really no idea what what percentage of the estate of the internet was vulnerable to this thing but it was a non-trivial uh, percentage um, I, you know whether or not it was the most significant vulnerability or not I think it's neither here nor there um, but I learned a bunch of things about this. Um, number one, you know, the industry is is, uh, is pretty focused on one upping or, or, I guess, making a name for for themselves, and so it, so it's kind of an interesting thing when you see uh, something like the log4j vulnerability come out, especially in a piece of obscure code like log4j that hasn't had a long history of. Uh, a parade of CVEs, like some some other open source packages, suddenly all of the researchers, or, you know, many researchers are sud- are, are you know analyzing, looking for additional things, and dare I say, incentivized to find something. And uh, you know, we certainly saw that. I think there were three or four wave, you know, successive waves of vulnerabilities. Uh, 2.15 was released to fix the initial uh, really severe vulnerabilities or remote code execution vulnerability. Um, then there was a, another version. It was a, a some flaws found in that version, which initially would looked like a, a denial of service. But over the weekend, while I was at Disney World, of course, it was upgraded also to be a remote code execution. And, and then I think there was yet another go around with a denial of service. And so now we are up to version 2.17.1. And I'm, you know, holding my breath waiting for either 2.18 or 2.17.2 as <laughs> some new enterprising researcher finds a, a vulnerability. By the way, I'm in no way knocking, um, you know, the, the researchers who are finding these things. It, it, I am knocking the timing of uh, finding it and reporting on it while I'm on my way to Disney World. That part really didn't sit well with me. But um, Have you not learned you just cannot take vacations? <laughs> I, think, I think that was my takeaway. So um, 
couple of, couple of other lessons that I took away. Number one is it was really hard for many organizations to figure out all the places they had Log4j. I would wager some of them still don't know. True. Very true. Um, and then number two, I, I tweeted about this, and, and I, I think it was um, eye-opening for many companies. Most organizations, and indeed most, um, I, all that I'm aware of, um, security frameworks don't allow end-of-life software. However, what did we learn in Log4j? Well, damn near everything had Log4j. Half of those things used an end-of-life version, which coincidentally wasn't vulnerable to this particular nasty exploit. And that's why I'm still running Windows World Groups 3.11 right now. <laughs> so it, it worked out well that Kafka... For example, even the latest version that came out in August, I think it was, which is a very commonly used piece of open source, uh, was using, uh, I think, like a seven or eight-year-old version of Log4j. Again, not vulnerable to this thing, but you know, it, really, it really put a, um, a spotlight on something that has been emerging in the industry called the Software Bill of Materials. You know, there, there was a... Uh, executive order early in the year, early last year, I guess, uh, in, by the U.S. government. One of the outcomes of that is this concept, this notion of creating a software bill of materials. And, you know, coincidentally, like this is a great example of why that's important so that you actually know where you have different pieces of software in your environment. And, well, uh, and it got... It, it, it gets a little more complicated too, I thought, or I think, with Log4j, which is that a lot of the vulnerability scanners were just looking for the package. But depending on how it's implemented, like I've seen a number of third parties that in- integrate this into their code, which makes it A, more difficult to find. B, there are mitigations that they can set up or, or portions of the code they can disable that makes it not vulnerable. But your vulnerability scanners don't know that. So they find, hey, you're running, you know, 2.x pre 2.15, they fly it as log shell. And then you have to do the dance with the vendor of, well, is it or isn't it, right? Yep. Uh, as an example, I, it, you know, I, I agree with you on the older code. Interesting, you know, some got lucky there. But at the same time, going back to your comment about the researchers, I would bet a dollar a whole bunch of people are poking at 1.x trying to find vulnerabilities as well right now. And then exploit activity is going through the roof on that or attempted exploits. So, I mean, there are some nasty exploits for that version too. It just isn't the log for shell, absolute trivial max, Yet. you know, right. Yeah. You know, max dangerous version of it. So it was a really interesting little tough problem. Uh, and, you know, again, this comes back to, how mature is your asset management, IT management, code management, software build materials? Uh, what do you know you have in your environment? And, and you know, the other thing I, I'll mention that you were talking earlier about, was this the most dangerous or the biggest deal? You know, what I thought it was, was the biggest reaction from everybody's third-party risk management. Because everybody and their brother was asking everybody else and their brother, are you running this and are you vulnerable to it? <laughs> Well, I, I, you're, I think you're spot on 
with that. But I think I think one difference today versus in the days of Heartbleed and, and Shellshock is, you know, we've had since we've had it in the interceding years, we've had, you know, Kaseya and we've had um solar winds and and on and on right where this supply chain problem is has really manifested a lot of organizations have created third-party risk management functions that didn't have them before yeah and so i i I think you're absolutely spot on with that but i still question their effectiveness Are are you saying that that the spreadsheet you know questionnaire spreadsheets are not effective I, 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 I'm, I'm stunned. What stunned absolutely silence. entertained me? Well, <clears throat> Bob. I was talking to Bob. Remember Bob, our friend Bob. I do remember Bob. Yep. Bob was telling me that the company he works at, they got their first questionnaire within a few hours of the first press release about this, with, by the way, a less than 24-hour deadline to answer the question. Wow. So, uh, Bob's well, company apparently. Well, Bob. Well, you know, I mean, it's easy. He sells, you know, he runs a bait shop. So it was pretty easy for him to say no. But I'm just saying. Yeah. That, that's that's a serious turnaround and an expectation of reality that makes you wonder. I I certainly understand. Uh, you know, it was, it, it, it was interesting. Um, it, it, and I'm thinking back to the, the sequence of events on, on that day. It was... Was announced. Um, it was announced overnight for between a Thursday and a Friday, and I woke up in the morning and I was uh, sitting in my inbox. And and um, you know, at, at the time, there was very little way of identifying it. Right? You didn't the phone scanners and whatnot hadn't released uh, signatures, and and in fact, you know, the signatures themselves had evolved. Uh, you know, with companies like Tenable, had evolved over the course of darn near a week um, but I would you know one of the I think one of the challenges with getting out of the gate so fast like that is if you demand answers from a from your suppliers within a day or something like that coming out what is the likelihood they actually are able to answer your question completely and accurately right exactly um, now, going back to something you, you talked and about. And here's the next question. Let's say your vendors or, you know, you were asking somebody and they go, yeah, we're vulnerable front, back, and sideways. Okay, now what? Right. <laughs> what are you going to do? Like, how, what is your intent with this information? Making sure that that other organization is aware? Oh, believe me, they're aware. I I have... I have heard of some companies in response to this actually turning off systems or disabling accounts. I guess that's possible. I guess it just depends on the situation. Right. But right. more often than not, I see it's some GRC guy going, hey, look, my boss asked me to send this out. And, yeah, and I, I send it out. I have this questionnaire that I have to send out. It, right. So You're identified as a vendor of XYZ Corp. So going back to going back to the scanners, my my observation was that you're you're right. Most of the most of the scanners were based on version number, and they didn't have the context of whether or not you were um, you were mitigated. Like there were multiple ways to mitigate it. You could remove the GDNI class. You could um, 
at least with the first vulnerability, the, the log for shell, you could disable lookups in the configuration file that ended up not being effective for later uh, problems. Uh, but those scanners really wouldn't have that that context. Um, eventually, at least with uh, with Tenable, I saw they had the ability to, uh, under certain circumstances, actually you know attempt an exploit. Right? It it would um, run a query that would cause a DNS would run a uh, run a, a log string, which would try to trigger a DNS lookup. And if that DNS lookup hit, then it you know it, it, the scanner knew that that system was in fact vulnerable. So that was a really high fidelity uh, detection, but it's also opportunistic, and and you know quite likely not the only way to trigger that vulnerability. And so you know if you if you relied too heavily on that as a indicator of where you were and were not vulnerable. You probably were missing things, but on the other hand, if you were just looking at all the installs of Log4j 2.x, you were also probably overly, you know, you you were including things that were almost certainly not vulnerable. But at the same, you know, at the end of the day, how risk averse are you, right? Uh, you know, um, yeah, maybe you aren't. Maybe you, you your in, your application or whatnot is is not configured in a way that's exploitable but do you want to take that chance when you have everybody and their dog running around trying to stuff ransomware through this vulnerability that's that's the conundrum we have yeah it's a good point i mean it's one of those rare instances where i think it got everybody's attention enough that it certainly redirected priorities yeah uh which is great for this one but how many other nine plus CVSS score critical volumes are not getting this attention. Mind well, you, they're not getting the same exploit activity. Yeah. Right? So there's that quantifier. That was um that that is interesting. It's a great point because there are a fair number of uh you know nine dot nine plus uh vulnerabilities and, and tens which don't have this level of of furor. And, you know, in some instances, I suspect that's deserved. But in other instances, I think it's more a factor of marketing and branding. Yeah. Which is a little annoying. In, the, in this case, look, I mean, the, 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 it was real. It was exploitable. There's no two ways about it. It needed to get fixed ASAP. Uh, but I, I'm more talking that I think there are probably others that fall into the same bucket that we that we should be applying the same level of focus on that we don't because it's not given a name and it's not talked about on Good Morning America. With a theme song and a mascot. <laughs> and a mascot and yeah. This one did not though. Some of the other ones, like we've made a lot of fun of other vulnerabilities that had like, you know, logos and their own font. This one, not as much. It was, this one was not as as monetized as a finding, I think, as some of the older uh, ones we've made fun of over the years. That is true, although I will say um, the the initial organization that, that uh, published this or publicized this, I've, I'm drawing a blank on their name right now, initially named it Logjam, and then later had to re- 
rename it when someone pointed out that that name had already been used. <laughs> Look, you need to get an, alert, an attorney to do a, a patent and copyright search, <laughs> trademark search That's for right. your new we, vulnerability. We need a uh, we we need like a uh, an IETF standard, for, you know, na- naming convention for uh, for vulnerabilities. It's true. Clearinghouse. So anyway, um, that I think that's our uh, that's our show for today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say Log4j was certainly an interesting experience, and and I know my organization. Once we get through the holidays, is planning to do a long, deep dive on what went well and what didn't go well. Absolutely. And, you know, that's certainly something I'd recommend to folks if they've dealt with this. Yeah, and by the way, if you're not planning to do that, I might I recommend that you do because I can guarantee just about every organization has a bunch of lessons that they can learn from this. Yep, yep. And, and you know, it's one thing to, to do the deep dive and capture those lessons learned. It's another thing to actually try to implement them, make some change. So yeah. something to think about. Absolutely. But anyway, yeah, that's all I had to say on that. Good deal. Well, thank you, everyone. It's good to be back. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be back on a regular schedule here. We'll see you in May. <laughs> yes, indeed. No, well, thanks everybody. Hopefully, uh, you know we still got some folks out there listening. If not, we'll work to to regain your trust and get back on it. All Give right. you some content worth every set you pay for. That's right. Take care, everyone. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.